So that's basically Oliver's complex. But Freud refers it to like you have a thing for your mom. Hello, welcome back to another episode of The Dark Ones with CJ and Zoo. All right, you guys can see from the title today. Um, apparently, someone is quite interested in this guy called Sigmund Freud. So, <laughs> Zoo, do you know anything about Sigmund Freud? Well, um, Sigmund Freud, it's like the first name that comes to my mind whenever somebody tells me that they are a psychology major. Uh, so I don't know much about him to be very honest, uh, except for the fact that he uh, came up with theories about psychoanalysis and like psychosexual analysis. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what I'm talking about, CJ. Like, um, I, but it sounds very funny in a way. And why don't you like just enlighten us a little bit about like what he is and what is what he does. Sure, sure, sure. Glad to be, especially yeah. the psychosexual part, which you asked me about it. Yeah, what is that? <laughs> um, I'll get to it. So I think it's fair enough to say okay. that you introduce him as the father of psychoanalysis. So mm. basically, what he uh, let me tell you a bit about his background. Fair enough. So like it kind of can kind of build up to where he is right now. So he okay. was when he was young, he did very well in school. Um, age of seventeen, he went off to a medical school in University of Vienna. So eight years later, he got his medical degree, and then on, from then on to the deathbed, he was obsessed with personality, especially with reducing the personality to the neurological manner. So um, later on, he came back after he got his medical degree. He came back to his to Vienna, did a lot of stuff, and that's where his principles and theory started. So like you said, you know, you know about psychoanalytic theory, you know about psychosexual theory. That is his yeah. the theory that he came up with. Um, early in his life, he was very obsessed, like I said, just now about personality. Right. Um, he was one of the first person to really popularize the concept of conscious and unconscious. Um, well, there's many people who's already talked about it during his era, but he was the first person to really propose like serious theories, especially about the unconscious, without mentioning of any ghosts, ghosts, zombies, and whatnot. So he was like the first person who really said, oh, guys, let's really dive deep into this. Um, I have theories, let's talk about this, without involving the supernatural. So back then, everyone was like, oh, interesting, okay, let's see how it goes. Um, so basically, right, he came up with uh, three things well, I wouldn't say three things, but we are detected by three levels of awareness. The first one is conscious. You know what's conscious, right? So conscious is basically like anything you're aware of right now, like your thoughts, your perception, your feelings, etc. So things that you feel while you're awake. Yeah, basically anything you are aware of, right? Okay, next we go to pre-conscious. Pre-conscious is a little bit deeper. So imagine like a iceberg, right? On top, floating on the and the Arctic Sea. So the iceberg, the top of the iceberg is called conscious. That's where, like I said just now, your feelings, your thoughts, perception, anything you are aware of at any moment. Next, you go below the ocean, but not to the end of the iceberg, but in the middle part, we have the pre-conscious. Pre-conscious is the part where anything that can be made conscious. Like, let's say I ask you, uh, what did you eat just now, Lou? Um, rice. So you just use your pre-conscious to bring up the memory, to bring up the thought, come into your consciousness. That is pre-conscious. It's not there before I ask you. When I ask you, you had to pull the answer from somewhere, and that is your pre-conscious. Make sense so far? Yes. Cool. Yes, and I think the, so. Yep. The bottom part of this iceberg of awareness is called subconscious. Subconscious is anything that is not easily available to our awareness. So things like trauma, our instincts, our drive, motivation, and other things like that. So Freud was very interested in the subconscious, especially because he believes that because our desires, our instincts derive from the subconscious, if we can 
you know, dive deep into our subconscious, we can alter our desires and um, in a way solve our traumas. Make sense? So, so in a way, trying to like go to the root of the problem to solve exactly the, the root problem. The root of the problem. And he believes he it's lies in the subconscious. Yes, right. that's very correct. Okay. So okay. but back then no one knows anything about this because obviously it's a very early era. So he was one of the first person who really said, guys, let's dive deep into subconscious. He was very, very interested in the subconscious. So diving deep into subconscious, he was saying that, okay, where do we, where can we find our subconscious? When are we usually accessing our subconscious? Zu, any idea? How do we access our subconscious? Or like, when do we usually access our subconscious? When we are being hypnotized. <laughs> well, that's one, but we don't get hypnotized every day, do we? Mm. I'll give you one when more we're chance. dreaming? Or exactly. when we're like meditating? Yeah, so again, not many people okay. meditate, so he went into dreams. He was very interested in dreams because he believed that dreams are a representative of our desires and everything that we are dreaming of are parts of our subconscious. Make sense? Mm. So that's why he's very interested in dreams. That's what he believes in. He wrote a book about it called The Interpretation of Dreams. So he... Wow, helped. like we all get some messed up dreams though. Yeah, that's Don't true. We? So he offered like in forms of therapy, he will ask you to like describe your dreams and then he will interpret it for you. That is one of his earliest theory, the dream theory. Because mm. he believes that to be able to interpret your dreams, he will be able to help you figure out the meaning behind the dreams which are derived from your subconscious. So in a way, it can help you to figure out what, like it, it could be related to your current problem. Then you're like, oh, maybe it's related. This dream is talking about this part of the problem that you're having and that's, then from then on, he dies deep. So basically he's using the dream as an anchor to help people solve their problems back then. I think this makes, a, makes some sense uh, and I can kind of relate to it because like there was a period of time when I was like really stressed out where I keep getting the same kinds of dreams. I get dreams of losing teeth. Mm. Have you heard of it? Yeah, well, I get you can just type it. It sounds Google. really creepy. Yes, mm. I did. I typed it in Google and like apparently it's a thing and like I'm not the only one getting these kind of weird dreams. Yeah, so that's what he was proposing back then. Everyone was really into it, then made it popular. Well, I'll get to the credibility at the end of this session because we obviously want to talk about that. Um, mm -hmm. But let's move on to his second like popular theory. His second popular theory is, like you said just now, the psychoanalytical theory. So um, before I go any further, do you want to try and guess what is the psychoanalytical theory all about? Psychoanalytical theory? Uh, you mean like psycho? Uh, I have no idea, huh, CJ. <laughs> um, is it like um, uh, trying to assess a person's behavior and like trying to see what they're, they're trying to get to based on their behaviors? Close enough. So instead oh, of behaviors... It, it's, just, it's just a wild guess. <laughs> yeah, that's fine, that's fine. So instead of behaviors, okay. He, the theory is postulated around the theory that all humans have instincts to satisfy their basic needs. So like food, water, shelter. Okay, that's the mm. first part. And by satisfying these needs, these basic needs, produces pleasure. And this pleasure leads to the, the development of the human sexual drive. That was his theory mm. back then. So he relates it to pain and pleasure. By, by satisfying your basic needs, you are satisfying your pleasure drive, sexual drive, okay? Right, so it's like, oh, um, I, eat, I ate something very delicious and it's like, what? It turns me on. Well, not really that turns you on, but it fulfills the pleasure, the pleasure side of you. Because eating is not just about mm. fulfilling your basic needs, that's the first level. The second level of eating, obviously, as you know, food produces certain chemicals and especially when there's a study that said that when you compare eating good food and cocaine it produces the same chemicals oh really good food yes. and cocaine yes 
Well, the, okay. Yeah. So, okay, let me move on to say that psychoanalytical theory is actually a method of investigating and treating personality disorders. Okay, and it's used in psychotherapy. So, included in this mm -hmm. kind of theories, like ideas that things that happen to people during their childhood can contribute to the way they function as an adult later on. So this I is very important. So he was a pioneer in this, in this theory. Let me say again, he, the, the theory is that the idea that things can happen to people during childhood. So things, events, whatever not, you may remember it, you may not remember it, but these events can contribute to the way this child, these children later function as adults. So this is very important because it's, although it wasn't very proven, but this theory itself inspired many others to develop later on, as now we call it, the modern attachment theories, modern developmental theories, and so on and so forth. So this theory alone inspired many others to investigate further. And this is what we are believe, we believe in right now. Like events that happen during childhood can affect the way the child can affect later adults. So that's what the modern theory of attachment is saying. And it's all based on him, this, this current, this part of the theory. So he actually inspired a lot of um, like other psych psychologists, uh, yes. other, yeah, other, would you call them scientists? Well, I think they would prefer to call psychologists, but psychologists, mm. After him, many, many, as psychology develop, develops, um, the method of investigation also developed and eventually they merge together with the scientific method. Um, this part is a bit of a debate because there are some parts that are following, that follows the scientific method. There are some that doesn't. I'll go into this maybe another time, but yeah. So the, the whole gist is that Freud inspired the modern attachment theory and the modern developmental theory from this. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, so that's part of his psychoanalytical theory. I see. So there's actually like the sexual part is just, just a very small part of whatever that he has oh, no, no, come no, up with that he's contributing. No, no, no. Oh, we are. Okay. <laughs> so I'm laying the foundation so that you can understand like step by step. Uh, so that he says, okay. That, okay, things happen to children can affect them in adults. And he ties in with the first thing that I told you just now, which is like, people need to um, satisfy their basic needs and we, by satisfying basic needs, leads to the development of sexual drive. Mm. So he postulates that there's three types of awareness in everyone, um, but he attributes more towards child because that's what he was investigating back then. So it's called it, ID, it, ego, mm -hmm. and superego. So these three okay. ties in together with the conscious, subconscious, and pre-conscious. Conscious, pre-conscious, and subconscious going down the iceberg. Okay. Okay. So it, ID, yeah. reference, refers to the, the person's nervous system. So it is the same as the conscious because so think of three, basically three level of awareness right now, like maybe you can think of three balls in a way, or three, I don't know, maybe three glowing balls or whatnot. Uh, because he says that it is the nervous system and it takes care of your immediate needs. Okay, it's trying to take care of your basic needs, but it can never satisfy these basic needs because each time, that it tries to satisfy the basic needs, the needs will become stronger and stronger and eventually becomes ego. So what I mean by this is, this is talking about the baby growing up to become a toddler. Okay. Okay. Oh, we're getting there now. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Then talking about ego now, ego refers to the reality of things, right? It tries to satisfy the needs created by it the nervous system, um, it introduces to the reality, but cannot really keep the it happy because as I told you just now, the needs never stops 
And when you satisfy the needs, the needs become stronger and stronger. So these mm -hmm. two are like fight in a way fighting, not really fighting, but coexisting, but never be able to satisfy one another. And it comes to superego. Okay. Superego is like the parent of these two. So they try to tries to recollect things to try to avoid it. So it tries to remember punishment. It tries to there's two parts of superego, by the way. So it's a bit it gets a bit confusing, but that's what he's he's saying. So in the superego, there's two parts of superego. One is the conscious of the superego. That part remembers punishment. The ego ideal of the superego remembers rewards. So in a way, think of superego as the police or the parent for it and ego. It, ego try to fight, try to fight, and superego is like, hey, stop. Okay, remember, remember the punishment, remember the rewards, you know, try to police them and keep them in control. But then again, this theory, this part wasn't fully, I wouldn't say, I would say it wasn't really fully developed further because that's where it ends. But it's, a, it's just a theory. Okay. But again, it correlates to the conscious, preconscious, or conscious part. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So now we're going to the, the second theory that he's, he was famous for, ties in with the developmental stages. It's called the psychosexual developmental stages. This is the one you're mm. interested in because of the word sexual. Exactly. I've, I've been waiting for just this part. <laughs> cool, cool, cool. So, um, psychosexual developmental stage. Um, you want to try and guess what is it about? Um, like as you mentioned just now, um, as you grow up, we that several layers of consciousness. The first first part is um to, what is it again? Sorry. First part is the eat, which means that to, it is to fulfill your basic needs. And then the second layer is to uh, what, when you want more than just your basic needs. And the third part is uh, when you have to start controlling mm -hmm. your, your desires and your, your needs. Mm -hmm. Not needs, sorry. Your desires, basically. So when this sexual part comes in, when you are starting to hit like higher levels of um, your desires and the more the, the more you feel um, whatever it is that you're feeling the more that, that's when like the sexual feelings kick in do you get oh. what I mean <laughs> is, is that what it is well close yeah. enough like um, okay psychosexual developmental stages refers to the child as they grow up from birth to adulthood and he's saying that all of these stages are very important to the developmental of the child to, adult, to adulthood. Okay, so we got five stages. From birth to 18 months, we have the oral stage. Oral stage refers to the mouth. So, the, so like, you know, that's the stage where they start to eat, they start to teeth, they start to suck on things. So that's the oral stage. Then we have the anal stage. That's where I wouldn't say they started. They were like they are from two to three years old. So that's mm -hmm. where they are more aware of the, the the bottom part. Okay. Okay. So next we have the phallic zone. Phallic zone um, is from <laughs> three to five years. So that's where it's more related to the front of the bottom part. Just now it's the back. Now it's the front. Wow. Yep. That is what, five years old? Yeah, three to five. Uh, so latency is more about like, it's from six to uh, six years old to adulthood, uh, puberty, sorry. Yep. Six years old to puberty, and it refers more towards like, I wouldn't say hormone, but we're getting there, like the development of the hormones. Then we have fifth-ish genital, so that's from puberty to adulthood. Freud proposed that all five stages are very important, and if you if each stage is not fulfilled, incomplete stages can lead to fixation. So it means that oh, if you're from birth to eighteen months, that means you're in, that means you're more fixated on, on oral, and that time if you don't get enough like 
teething, sucking, biting, whatnot. Like you're not, you haven't fulfilled the fixation. Also, oh, you haven't fulfilled the needs back then. That will lead to a fixation. So in adulthood, adults tend to smoke, tend to do lots of eating, you know, do lots of things related to the oral. I'm pretty sure you can think one more example, but I'm not going to talk about that. <laughs> what? <Yeah. laughs> so, so it's like, uh, yeah. it, at that stage, when you're not fulfilling what you're supposed to fulfill, and then like it, it forms some kind of a deprivation like within yes. yourself, and then when you grow up, you, are, you would like act in a way which tries to compensate for what you were deprived yes. of. That's okay. correct. And then, you know, so if you are fixated, you are, if you're not, uh, if you're fixated on the anal stage, uh, that means you are, you know the term of people say like you have a stick up your butt? Uh, you know yeah, term? but I don't quite, yes, but I don't yeah, quite so get it. Does that mean it means that you're very uptight? Yeah, kind of. Uh, it means you're quite uptight. <laughs> um, you may or may not have like fixation around the anal part. So. But I have a question actually regarding mm -hmm. this stage in life about the, the, the anal stage. Like, what are the things that you're supposed to do to fulfill those needs while, while you were at that age? Like, what, two to five? So, basically, just a natural, in a natural setting, whatever the child is looking for, let them fulfill it. Don't stop them. That's what he's proposing. But what are those things that has to do with anal? that you need to do while toilet you're a training. child. Toilet training. Uh, yeah, so the major one is toilet training. Okay, okay, that so makes sense now. Because if I'm you're fixated on the anal part, you are, you tend to have messy, you tend to be messy, you tend to be disorderly, and things like that. So mm. phallic refers to the genitals. And mm -hmm. if you're fixated on this, you tend to have Oedipus or Electra complex. What's that? So, uh, sexual dysfunction. I'll explain that later because that's another theory of his. Okay, sure. Okay, so remind me, to, I'll, I'll let you know later. So okay. next we have the fourth stage, latency. Latency is about, like I said, actually, like I said, it's not, I say that it was about the process of development between six to 12 years old. So, in between the puberty. So that's where they socialize, that's where they you know, meet friends and um, yeah, talk to people, talk to adults, talk to children. So this is where they, this is very important for them to develop their defense mechanisms. Another term that I'll explain later on. Uh, and the fifth stage is the genital. So genital is refers to the full sexual maturity. So difference between this stage and the phallic stage? So phallic stage, um, Oedipus, okay, let me explain Oedipus and Electra complex now, since you are okay. very curious about it. So Oedipus complex, as Freud explained, uh, comes from a very old, I think it's a Roman. Don't, don't quote me on that, but it's a very old like story, whereby Oedipus is a character, and there's a prophecy for Oedipus whereby the prophecy states that he will kill his father and he will marry his mom. No, not wow. marry, have sex with his mom. So the father and mom back then also knew about this prophecy. They cast him out far away so that it doesn't happen. Then a few years later, not a few years later, many years later, when he's already grown up, he doesn't know who his mom and dad is because he was a baby back then. He doesn't know who his parents were when they sent him out. So basically he was living on his own, growing up with other people and things like that. And then many years, many years later, he was traveling with a group towards a city. And he, was, he got into an argument with a guy. So basically the guy is the king of the whole city. So he got into a fight, he killed the king. But then he didn't know, the king was actually his father. Oh God. So basically it means the queen of the city is his mom. So he didn't know that, he killed the father, then he married the queen. And of course, have sex with the queen. So basically he fulfilled the prophecy. And the queen didn't know it. The queen didn't know because they didn't see him for a very long time or so. Right. But 
but then he eventually he found out he found out the horrors of what he's done the atrocities and in the end he gouged his eyes out so that's basically Oliver's complex but Freud refers it to like you have a thing for your mom so according that's the story from Oedipus so the Oedipus complex is that um, the males the sons are in love with their moms then they feel like they have to compete with the dads so they want to get rid of the dad but they are afraid of the dad knowing what's going on so they develop a castration anxiety castration anxiety means like oh, they have fear of being cast away this is how Oedipus was in the beginning of the story then they realize that oh they will never have their the mom the love of the mom the same as how the mom loves the dad so they give up the, the son give up and they will begin to identify them with the dads so the last stage is like they want to be just like their dad so they can find other women who can satisfy their needs in replacement of the mom so this is a cycle so yeah, Oedipus, that's Oedipus complex for you. Wow, that answers a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's so messed up. <laughs> well, if you look at the, like, the history of psychology, like, there's a lot mm -hmm. of stuff there. And, you know, you were asking about, I mean, if there's a guy, there's definitely a girl, right? So girls, he calls it penis envy. Or as penis envy. Yeah. Or it's known as Electra complex, but he calls it penis envy. Okay. So penis envy is, is basically it? saying that girls um, are envious of not having a penis. So hmm. instead of trying to have one, they form relationship with the person who has one. So the closest one is their dad's. So but they also realize they cannot have the same love as the dad to the mom. So they, what is it? They find qualities similar to their dads in other men. Mm. Make sense? I mean, it makes sense that I find qualities similar to the, my dad in other men, but like, I, I don't, love my dad in that way if, yeah. if you get what i mean of course, of yeah course. yeah but it's a it's a quite a weird theory i would say i know right but yeah i, I wonder if people actually identify with it do people yeah. identify with it um i'm not sure about identifying but the common phrase is daddy issues <laughs> that there's a, lot of, there's a lot of variables that go into this so i think it depends mm. on the person now. But yeah i feel like it's a it's very theory. it's a very subjective thing it's really really subjective of course that's why it's called theory uh but mm. then again this um, inspired many people to look into it but i didn't really but that's where he stopped but i need to make sure make you understand that all of this that i mentioned he used it in his therapy so like mm -hmm. he was a therapist, basically. I see. Yeah. That's interesting. So, that answered a lot of my confusion yeah. about this um, guy. But I want to also say that he also has one more theory that is so basically most of his theories are actually disputed in the psychological field. But we everyone cannot ignore the contributions he made because he laid the foundation for others to investigate further. But one of it, one aspect of his theory that still holds true today is called the defense mechanism. So defense oh, mechanism. Oh, that's his theory. Yeah. Defense mechanism. Mm. Children develop it during the latency stage, six to twelve, according to his theory, because that's the age where children socialize. And you know, there's going to be conflicts, there's going to be issues along the way. So he said that there are 12 identified defense mechanisms from children and they later carry on to adulthood. So the 12 is, the first one is compensation. So compensation means um, compensate. You strengthen one aspect of yourself to compensate 
to hide another one. So the common one would be like people with big cars, people with small cars, equals question mark. Yeah. Mm. So the second one is denial, the refusal to face the negative behavior, or just flat out refusal to um, accept the truth or accept whatever is thrown to them, denial. Third one is displacement. Um, displacement means take it out on someone else. So basically, a common example I can give is like, okay, the boss scolds the dad, the dad comes home, scolds the mom, the mom scolds the son, the son scolds the little sister. So everyone's taking it out onto someone else, the anger that's given up onto them. Of course, it's not just about scolding. It could be like um, actions, behaviors, you know, displacing the given emotions to something else. That's displacement. Um, next one is identification, attachment to something positive. So it could be like your role model, your someone you admire, your even your big brother, big sister, things like that. Identify with someone. Right? Doesn't even have to be someone related to you. Could be just someone you look up to, or like a friend. Uh, next one is called interjection. So interjection is basically like you conform your feelings for approval. Like you you consult yourself. Like you say like, oh, should I do that? Then you're like, ah, oh, yeah, maybe I should eat that cake. Then without asking anyone, mm -hmm. you're just like saying, hey, I approve. Projection. Uh, projection is like you see, you project your thoughts into others, like, or just basically project your desires or whatnot onto others. Let's say you want a chocolate cake, but you say, hey, you want a chocolate cake, not me. You want it, right? You want it. That's a, that's a very exaggerated example, but that's an example of projection. Mm -hmm. It's like, uh, next one is rationalization. We do this all the time. Excuses, try to justify for your actions, behaviors, mistakes. It's very common. To get out of trouble, of course. Uh, next one is uh, reaction formation. Like you pretend you're different. I think this one is more towards in a very social setting. Like how we say, like, oh, that's the norm, but I don't want to be the norm. So uh, let me be different so I can stand out. And the ninth is repression. So repression is you see something or you feel something, you ignore it, you push it down. You know the feeling like you push your feelings down into a bottle? This is repression. Next one is a ritual. So ritual means that it's what every what motivation guru is saying right now. It's like you override a negative behavior with a habit. But ritual doesn't mean a negative thing. It doesn't also mean habit. Ritual is basically the things that you do every day. Sublimation, last one, is about the diverting the negative into an acceptable uh, reason. So you're trying to satisfy your impulse with a substitute object in a socially acceptable way. So it's like sports. So what I mean by impulse could be like aggression. Like you know how some guys have this aggression and they try to substitute this aggression with something that is socially acceptable. So sports is one of them, like you know, rugby. Um, sport is a socially acceptable event. That so basically it's like channeling, channeling, yeah, channeling your negativity onto something yeah. else. Okay. okay. So that's the trough defense mechanisms. And this trough is still recognized today um, because we still, we still see it, we still use it one form or another. So maybe next time with this information zoo, maybe you can recognize your friends, your family members who have who are displaying all of this defense mechanisms. Then you know like hey, they are defending, they're trying to defend themselves. Yeah, actually like all these like the 12 stages, I, I kind of like can think of scenarios that I can relate to, like even on like my own behavior or past behaviors. I, I have um, you know, days or situations where I feel like I need to defend myself or there are days where I want to repress my emotions so that I don't, so that I come off in a way where um, I'm not 
rash or like, you know, like just so that I portray myself in a way that I want myself to be portrayed. Mm -hmm. Does it make sense? So that's in a way also trying to defend myself. And one more thing is um, with the sports thing. So to, to alleviate your stress uh, levels or to forget about the sadness or whatever it is that ruined your day. I find that, you know, the exercise really gets my mind off it or, or to channel like that negativity into something more positive mm -hmm. because like when I exercise and I see results, I, I feel happier. Something like that. Is, is that what it is? Well, yeah, it's basically that. It's basically similar to displacement, but it's, sublimation goes deeper in saying that we are displacing our unacceptable emotions into constructive behaviors. Like mm. somehow some artists who are very unhappy, they go, they, they go towards music to express themselves. So basically yeah. an outlet for themselves. Like maybe for you, uh. instead of killing someone, you exercise. <laughs> yeah, that's a very good example. Yeah, I, I feel like this theory uh, makes a lot of sense and like I actually see it happening in real life, like in every everybody. So that's one very underrated um, theory that um, Sigmund Freud has come up with. And like, mm -hmm. I feel like he deserves like a lot more recognition for that. Lah. Oh, definitely, definitely. But unfortunately, most of his theories are not applicable today. But he did lay a mm. good foundation in the field of psychology because it inspired many others to look into what he proposed, even though it was considered crazy at that time. Look at where we are now. Um, so he's like the driving force for the evolution uh, in a way. He's the, found, he's the father, basically. He's the pioneer. Uh, because he was talking about unconscious mind when no one was talking about unconscious mind. So, Interesting. Yeah, let's talk about today then. Like, if you want to talk about today, like I said, most of his theories don't hold up today. <laughs> but it inspired many others. So, example, like I said just now, he inspired the modern attachment theories that suggest, similar to what he said, early experiences in the child's relationship with the people around the child can influence how the child develop relationships with others later in. So it goes back, ties in back with his um, theory about the unconscious also, and also with the child development. Mm. Yep. So he's saying this, then this moral attachment goes further saying that um, it's important to understand that unremembered experiences can also shape your current experiences. So again, ties in back with his unconscious theory. I feel like this is a like some this kind of theories that you can just keep going on and on like and of course, but I'll go on any short. Cannot really get a sure answer out of like all these analysis. Of course not. That's why I, we, I'm just gonna like give a brief one, but enough for you mm. to think about it. Um, I'm gonna yeah. go short then. So I'm gonna make my final point saying that, well, Freud's therapy. Aren't you curious? Back then he's using it. Aren't you curious about now? So yeah, like are people actually using it? No, not really, right, as you mentioned. Well, not really is a good way to say it. Like I said, he's the founding father, so obviously his psychosexual therapy doesn't really hold up today, especially when we talk about the interpretation of dreams, because it's up to the interpretation of the therapist. But his psychosexual therapy, his psychoanalysis, all this is under... Is under this therapy called psychoanalysis or called psychodynamic therapy as of today. Um, and yeah, we still use it today, psychodynamic psychoanalysis theory, therapy. Um, if you've been to therapy or if you know how therapy works, it's basically a conversation, a talking, and diving deep into certain topics. So in a way, it's a very common therapy used today by psychiatrists or even counselors, because it involves talking. Psychoanalysis is a talk therapy. So mm. um, it's very useful today, especially, and it created many, many other effective psychoanalysis therapy. And the most 
famous one or the most commonly used is the CBT therapy called cognitive behavioral therapy. So it involves um, your cognitive and your behavior tying in your thoughts and your behavior. So that's another theory for another time, but the gist of it is saying that um, your thoughts, you take your actions, right? And your actions yep, somehow derive from your thoughts. So coming from these two like anchor points, you can kind of, you can talk to the person and then I, one, identify what are the current problems or current issues, and two, you can dive deep from there. But then that's just the surface area. It's, if I want to go deeper, it's going to be so much more. <laughs> that's who Sigmund Freud is. He's a guy that's, you know, crazy about a certain thing, which in this case, unconscious. He just went dive deep into it. And now here we are. Psychology. Mm. Was it as what you hoped? It is. Uh, it answers a lot of my questions. And I'm very glad that he's more than just like this, the guy who talks about, uh, you know, fan sexual fantasies with your mom and dad. <laughs> it's a lot more than that. Yep. Well, if you look at the bigger picture, it's definitely more than that. Well, let me leave off with one little story from, well, one little fact about Sigmund Freud. Um, did you know he was, he recommended cocaine as part of a medicine? And he even, he even used cocaine for himself. Did you know about that? Oh, no. But let me give a context, okay? So back then, everyone was used, was experimenting with cocaine because it was a new drug. So everyone was using it as a medicine. So he was like left and right, left and right, cocaine, 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 while smoking his pipe. So he was, you can think of him like someone who is obsessed with pipe, pipe smoking and cocaine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but then after that, you know, they realized that cocaine wasn't good medicine. So he felt so bad to, that he recommended so many people about cocaine. He wrote a book about it. Anyway, so yeah, but he still has his, he still smokes cigar and pipe. So when that's, that went with him to his graveyard. He lived up to 82, by the way. Sorry, what's that? What did you Lif say? He lived up to the age of 82. Ah. Despite being paranoid and having dreams that he would die by 61. That's another fact. He's an interesting like, character. Do you think he has... Sorry? He's an interesting character. Yeah, do you think he has some kind of like recognized mental disorder? Well, maybe. But then again, we can't know for sure because back then, no one can identify mental illness. <laughs> okay, so Zhu, like you're a lawyer, right? Mm -hmm. So coming from a lawyer's perspective, do you think um, information derived from a psychoanalysis, a statement between a therapist and a client, do you think that holds up in court as evidence? Mm. Very interesting question. Uh, in fact, it's like a question that I have in my mind throughout this whole podcast when you're explaining Freudian, this Freudian theory. So um, I wouldn't completely strike out the possibility of it holding water in court. But what I would say is that, you know, the practice of law is generally very factual and things need to be proven. And whatever evidence that you are tendering in court has to be convincing. And it is the lawyer's job to argue and the judge has to be satisfied with the lawyer's arguments. So um, what we can do with like, this psychoanalysis report is that um, the, our, our court actually allows us to summon um, expert opinion. So by expert opinion, I mean you can um, summon engineers, doctors and psychiatrists to come and um, testify or justify whatever it is that you're trying to um, prove to the court. Um, so when the subject matter pertains to a subject that is not law, then um, the opinion of a psychiatrist would definitely hold a lot more water than a lawyer's argument. 
So I would say it depends on a case by case kind of basis and also depends how much it relates to the facts of the case and the question that needs to be answered. So uh, if, if the question pertains to uh, why this person behaved in such a way and whether this person's behavior is attributable to something that happened in the past and whether this thing that happened in the past is um, something that's attributable to you know anything else. So from there we can start drawing the lines and like um, connecting the dots. But when you talk about like dream analyzing dreams and like just making a decision based on um, what the psychiatrist thinks about this person based on this person's dreams, I would say that this is a very far cry because <laughs> yeah like this um, dream analysis theory thing from Sigmund Freud, uh, as you mentioned, is not very applicable now. And it's also very, um, how do you say, like, debatable among psychiatrists. So, yeah, um, that, that's my opinion. Uh, basically, I wouldn't completely strike out a possibility. Uh, and it de depends on a case-on-case -case kind of basis and depends how convincing the, the evidence is and how relevant um, the the evidence is to solve whatever questions that um, the court is asking. So yeah, um, it can be possible, but it's a very subjective um, issue la, and it is um, approached, approached with uh, a lot of caution, very high levels of caution. Mm, fair enough, fair enough. Mm. So can I give you an example of Freud's psychoanalytic and the current psychoanalytic? And then you can tell me whether it can be used or not. Okay. So mm. like Freud's psychoanalytic, his his method is like let's say, uh okay. Jack's mom left his family when he was a child. Then ever then the therapist will assume that ever since then he has a very hard time trusting people. Okay, so this is a scenario. So the the according to Freud's like theories and according to his therapeutic methods, he will say that, oh the Jack will be very afraid of people abandoning him. So that's his Freud's method. Mm. So do you so, think that can be whole in court? So um, whatever that he experienced in his childhood wouldn't negate the fact that he committed something that is against the law. That's the first mm. thing I want to put out there. But um, also, again, depending on what offense he um, committed or what what he's being sued for, um, you know, it really depends on that. But if it's a, for example, if it's a criminal matter and uh, he's already sentenced and he already um, he already admitted that he's guilty, so this point can be brought up to mitigate his sentences because um what the court values is um when the person um creates guilty, it means that they show remorse and um, they are willing to take uh, punishment for their crime. So when you bring this, this fact up, like, you know, this so-called sob story, you can in a way um, convince the judge to lower down the sentence from, uh, let's say, um, one year of imprisonment to maybe six months. I mean, it, this is just a very um, simple example. Yeah, that's when, perfect. So when you show, when you show remorse, yeah. and that, that's when the court uh, kind of buys into this psychology element to um, that particular accused person. Very interesting, very interesting. Because mm -hmm. I was about to say like the, what the modern therapy is, is like, I was going to give you a scenario where a person tells his therapist that he killed someone. So obviously the therapist has to report to the police. Then I was going to say that, does that statement hold in court? Right. Um, you have to have proof of the person killing that other person. Right? I mean, you can't just anyhow go to the police station and say, oh, my client just confessed to me that he killed someone, but like, what proof do you have? Oh, because then yeah. like, you need to have something for the police to work with instead of just like words. So it means the, ther yeah. the therapist shouldn't, what should the therapist do then? Um, find out more, of course, about like that that murder and practice like his own prudent judgment in things. Like he would definitely have to find out like why did you kill that person? Like how did it happen? Like um, where's the body now? All these things like before you want to report it to the police because like you have to think further. Like what's your what's your what are you trying to achieve from reporting this to the police? 
you want the police to start working on it and to start investigating on the death of this person. So you need to have like those kind of info um, in hand first. And also you have to know whether like your client is actually telling the truth. Like maybe your client like, has some kind of mental illness and just just saying that he killed someone when he actually didn't. Mm, this yeah, kind of it's thing. It's a very great area, isn't it? It is. It is. Yeah. So, so um, you gotta be very careful in exercising the discretion mm -hmm. to you know <laughs> um, adopt this kind of methods, uh, especially in law and in court. Uh, you has to you have to make sure that it is relevant to the subject matter and it relates to the subject matter and it actually solves the problem and it it wouldn't waste any court timer because when something is not proven not like in black and white it's it's very contestable and it's very subjective and it takes a lot of time to like find other like similar evidence to corroborate whatever it is that they're trying to prove so just like one small statement alone it's it's not very strong, but it, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that it's like completely useless. Mm. Again, like I I know I've said this like a broken record. It it's on a case by case basis, and it really depends. Yep, definitely, definitely. Yeah. Okay, that's very interesting. Oh well, if you guys want to know about it more, um, I heard that Netflix has a series called Freud. You can look it up. Accurate or not, I'm not. 100% sure, but looks interesting. Okay. I might check it out. It sounds very interesting. <laughs> so yeah, you have any questions about Sigmund Freud? Or are you like clear? I'm quite clear. Yeah, I mean, like, I think I, I, I know enough now. Like, he is more than what I thought he was. <laughs> That's good, that's good. Mm -hmm. Well, I hope that our audience also gain some knowledge about him. And also, now if they come across Sigmund Freud, they won't just think about him and like his sexual dreams and stuff. Like incest. <laughs> uh, Alright, so I think that ends this episode of this week. So, guys, if you have any comments, any suggestions, just find us on Instagram at the Diet Ones Podcast. We'll be posting there more. So come and talk to us there. So that's it for today's episode. Bye. Bye.